0: Hey, Vince McMahon. It's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling Podcast. Oh no, give me a break. Oh, brother. All in all, you're just another brick in the wall if you don't listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank King Floyd for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and a wicked good podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you all to join our Facebook group. It is a very cool group with a lot of cool conversation about wrestling and whatever else. Um, Also, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, just search for John McAdam and follow the guy who has guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. I usually retweet cool stuff with my comments. That's pretty much it. And now, getting rolling with the show, I want to bring on our popular guest. He has produced more wrestling podcasts than Elvis and the Beatles combined, Mr. Luke Kippelman. Lou, thank you for joining me.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm, I, and I'm crawling up on the, the Eagles and uh, Pink Floyd.
0: All right, you're, you're getting up there with the, with the 70s group. If you haven't joined the Facebook group yet, you want to because we, every couple of months, have a show where we take questions from the people on the Facebook page. I actually try to do it every show, but I don't get around to doing it every show. Uh, The first question, Lou, I would like you to throw out there since you are the guest. Well, thank you, John. I'm going to go with this one
1: from uh, uh, listener Michael C. Hulse. Michael asks... What would have happened if Magnum T.A. took Andre the Giant's advice and went to the World Wrestling Federation instead of Mid-South? Andre was reportedly hyping him big to Vince Sr.
0: Now, I wonder where Andre really got a, a close look at Magnum T.A., because by the time Magnum had reached his you know level of stardom in Mid-South, Andre was strictly WWF property right well i think they i think the two got acquainted
1: uh when terry allen was in florida okay and so you know andre would come in he'd be i don't know how often he teamed with dusty around that time 82 Mm -hmm. 83 but the legend goes he took a look at terry allen and said man you look like tom Selleck. you should call yourself magnum ta so he's Supposedly, the one who uh,
0: who coined that, Andre. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. It looked like Tom Selleck. So what do you what do you think of that, Lou? Well, I mean, by
1: that point would have been middle of eighty two or so on Earth. One Magnum T A went to Mid South. What do I want to say? Like end of eighty two, beginning eighty three, or maybe a little later in nineteen eighty three. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, at that point, in 1982, though nobody, uh, not many people knew it, Vincent Kennedy McMahon signed the uh, the deal to purchase the World Wrestling Federation Capital Sports from his father and from the, the other stakeholders like Phil Zacco and Gorilla Monsoon. So, it'd be interesting. I mean, Andre... Talking to Vince Sr., I'm not exactly sure within that timeline when Vince McMahon, the younger, really started putting his fingerprints on the booking of the World Wrestling Federation. Right away is my, my understanding. Okay. So, I'd imagine if Andre was touting Magnum to Vince Sr., he'd be touting him to Vince, the new owner. And... I know that Magnum TA, uh, at least one of his matches, was aired on All-American Wrestling in its early days in 83. So I got to think Vince was perhaps looking at, at Magnum. Had Magnum jumped to New York? Knowing Vince Younger's predilection for, you know, big guys and monster guys, TA certainly I think was physically built enough to
0: kind of pass that bar he could always get a little uh pharmacological help as well, a little more, I guess I should say, ah, uh, yeah, good point.
1: you know whether Vince would have put the rocket on him and taken him up to upper mid card to uh main event status eventually. I'm not sure if you know Magnum had the requisite fire, had great moves in the ring. By that point, it would be a couple of years before he really started cooking with Tully Blanchard and other opponents in uh, the Carolinas. So I don't know if Magnum, well, having had the collegiate wrestling experience, perhaps he could have, you know, been in the intercontinental title picture through like 83, 84, but You know, eventually, I don't know if he would have been just somebody like, uh, you know, Steve Travis, just, uh, you know, couldn't get through the glass ceiling.
0: My comparison was also to Steve Travis in like 82, 83. I think that's about the level he would have gotten to. You know, of course, once he got his big push in Mid-South and then in uh, in JCP, I mean, if Vince had brought him in in 85 or 86, I think he he would have been in that intercontinental championship mix. He would have been, you know, the next step down below Hogan, but he first had to have, like, he had to establish himself as Magnum TA on cable first. Absolutely. And
1: we know how Bill Watts and the big lad, Vlad and then eventually Dusty envisioned him and pushed him if he had just gone from Florida to New York it would be very iffy on uh, how he would would have been penciled in.
0: No, I I agree. Terry Allen in 1983 would be Steve Travis in 1982. Well, like I said, he he would have had to have become a star somewhere else first, and you know there was a reason why. He was in a tag team in Florida in 1983. He was wrestling in Southwest in 81, 82. So, yeah, you know, I mean, he was climbing up the ladder. Good for him. But he was not ready for a WWF push in the early 1980s, in my opinion. I will ask a question of Lou from John C. Sutton III. How come it took so long for mainstream WCW and WWE for a Black Worlds champion to be crowned? I understand Bearcat Wright held the WWA championship, but you know what I mean. Yes, I do. Racism? If so, how did they promote Native American, Asian, and Hispanic world champions like Jack Briscoe, Pedro Morales, etc.? Lou, what are your thoughts on this? <sighs> Boy. I'll, I'll start by saying this was a shockingly racist business at one point. Yes, uh, that's for sure.
1: I mean, you got to say that along with other sports, a work sport like wrestling, with the exception of, of people like Jim Mitchell, there was definitely kind of a color line in that so many promoters or bookers wanted to kind of compartmentalize their wrestlers of color and just have them compete against each other. Ugh, I remember reading about that. Ugh. Oh, yeah. And, you know, thank goodness there were more forward-thinking people who came along, including Sputnik Monroe. But, yeah, I am fully tempted to get on a soapbox and start a stem winder about the race structure in this country. But I shall sit and count to three. Thank you. <laughs> Having said that... <laughs> Now it is interesting. Though you had the color line being broken by Jackie Robinson in Major League Baseball in '47, you had was a Willie O'Ree who was the first black hockey player. I don't know about
0: m- much about hockey to <laughs> know the facts on that. I mean, no black players in the SEC until the mid '70s. Give me a break. The mid '70s. Yeah. Wow.
1: Was Bear Bryant's
0: Alabama part of the SEC during that time? Yes, he was. You know what? I think I'm off. I think it was like late 60s. There was a story about they had a USC Alabama game and Sam Cunningham, who used to be one of my neighbors, just totally gashed Alabama. And Bear Bryant, who I don't like, but I like that he did this, brought Sam Cunningham into the Alabama locker room and said, you know, this is a man, this is a ball player. We're going to have black people on our team from now on. Hmm. Sam Cunningham told me that story. Interesting. Yeah, he was a good guy. So I echo your
1: your sentiments that it took a hell of a long time for promoters and, and bookers to come around and, you know, inject wrestlers of color into championship contention because of the social mores in some areas a little more overt than others, but there was a certain mindset wherever you were, I think.
0: Well, sure. I mean, we're up here in the Northeast and, you know, we think we're so much more sophisticated than everyone else. Yet at the same time, I mean, look at 70s WWF that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. Bobo Brazil leaves in the spring of 1977. Tony Atlas shows up fall of 1979. There were no black baby faces being pushed during that era. And I'm a kid in junior high, and I'm like, I'm noticing this. I'm like, okay, there are black football players, there are black boxers, baseball players, et cetera. Yet somehow there are no black wrestlers. It made no sense. And, you know, obviously as we we learn things as time goes on, that I mean, I learned that, you know, this could be kind of a toxic business. And this is an excellent example of it. I mean, it was huh, it was like the the promoters didn't even want black people's money that's how that's how deeply rooted that racism was it, It's terrible. I mean, look at eighty five eighty six j c p you've got Pez Whatley and no one else. I mean that's ridiculous
1: sadly you i mean that's uh, what can I say that's the truth, especially with the Carolinas
0: during that era. You're in Georgia. I mean, it made no sense. I mean, then again, I told the story before. I mean, I've been wrestling at the Mid South Coliseum more than once. I mean, twice more than once. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was, you know, there were a lot of p- black people there. Yet the Memphis promotion didn't really push a lot of black wrestlers, especially in the '80s. And they gave Brickhouse Brown an embarrassing push. You know, they they. I did not like what I saw there. Let's just put it that way. Right. He was, what was he, the head of the committee? Yeah, he, he gets on TV and he starts t- uh, talking about how he breaks into people's houses. Like, what? The, come on. <laughs> that's uh, where I get all my merchandise. Wow. That It was insane.
1: Wow. There, there's, there's heat. There's cheap heat. And there is, wow, that's like family dollar level heat there that's boy yeah And <laughs> to feel like you had to pull that out to get a response is uh that's that's a little sad
0: it really is and you know this is 1987 and you know you could i'll, I'll bet if jerry jarrett or jerry lawler were here listening to this podcast they'd probably say well it's, it was his idea well you don't let mm. wrestlers just do whatever they want out there on the grounds that it's their idea. You have to say, like, you know, no, Brickhouse, we're staying away from that. Right, right. It still
1: blows my mind that you mentioned between 77 and 79 there weren't any black baby faces, considering... It's the Northeast. Over the previous, like, couple of decades at least, Vince and James McMahon found a way to to book wrestlers that would appeal... To the various ethnic groups who became fans of wrestling and yet by that time it's just that's a that's definitely a blind spot to me
0: it was SD Jones was here but he was not getting pushed I mean if there's one thing I can say about the wrestling business that is better today it, it's not like that aew is not like that WWE is not like that I know they I think in 2005, they did a really dumb angle with Triple H and Booker T, but it seems like they've completely gotten away from that. So that's one good thing I can say about modern wrestling versus the stuff I grew up on. Right. You know, I'm looking at how John
1: couched the question, John Sutton, about, you know, WCW and WWE. Because, you know, if you go back, you'll see that, yeah, Bobo had shots at the nwa title and the wwa title in la and well probably in indianapolis as well and you had guys like rocky johnson who wrestled harley race for the nwa title at the mint south coliseum like a couple of months running so it's interesting I just thought I'd note that.
0: (laughs) Well, Mr. Sutton, believe it or not, it was probably worse than you realize. But like I said, things at least have gotten a lot better in wrestling. Let's let's pick a happier question. Your turn. Let's see. Uh,
1: From Stan Guzik. Another what if. What happens to Mid-Atlantic and Georgia if Dusty goes to Georgia to book it before it's sold to Crockett? And because of his booking, the territory is never sold.
0: Now, this would have to involve Dusty coming in, being full-time in Georgia, and only Mm kind of, okay, Dusty, you're the booker, and I'll take care of the business. And I think this could really have potential, especially if you do it before Black Saturday. And I think Dusty was still in Florida on Black Saturday, but I'm not sure. It was right around the same time he left uh, Florida for the Carolinas. If they had done this... In 1982, like late 1982, when Oli took over for, oh, uh, well, what's the guy's name? Are you th- thinking of Jim Barnett? Jim Barnett, thank you. I don't know why I couldn't come up with his name. Ole might have not completely gone under. WCW or Georgia Championship Wrestling sunk like a stone in 1983 and that never really recovered. And I think if they had brought Dusty in at that time and, used their cable advantage properly. I mean, it might have been a completely different ball game. So, I mean, good question from Stan. What do you think? Yeah.
1: So let me throw another little additional wrinkle in there. Okay. Let's say it was around late 82, and Ole ends up being unsuccessful in his power play. So perhaps Ole is relegated or outright exiled from Georgia Championship Wrestling. Jim Barnett is still in control. Barnett goes with Dusty as the booker. And let's say this is like, yeah, 82. By this time, GCW was regularly running in Ohio, uh, West Virginia, Michigan, and surrounding areas and doing quite well. So you've got like the beginnings of kind of the foundation for a larger regional or multi-regional promotion and knowing jim barnett's wealth of knowledge and connections in terms of television production and in terms of arena management stuff like that you gotta wonder combine that with dusty's booking acumen could we have seen georgia kind of preempt a uh, World Wrestling Federation expansion, you know, by about a year.
0: I think that if I think the WWF, if they saw that Oli was what's the word I'm looking for aggressively expanding or Barnett, excuse me, aggressively expanding, they would have gotten on it a lot sooner. I think like it would have been a Georgia championship wrestling versus WWF uh, wrestling war with everyone else just, you know, getting crushed in the middle. Mm hmm. So it is interesting. If, well, I mean,
1: by that time, you know, that might have hastened the the sale of of capital to uh, the younger McMahon. So, uh,
0: very possible. And you know, I mean, I, I've always said that, you know Vince was going to expand nationally, no matter what but only through the first punch when he started promoting in Pennsylvania. I mean, you know, (laughs) that way beat out Vince McMahon. Like I said, it's only through the first punch. What can I say? I've mentioned that probably too many times, but it's true. Mark Beaudry asks me, do you still have your wrestling magazine collection? And what was your favorite section? For example, what's happening with Bill After that you looked forward to seeing? Lou, did you get wrestling magazines back in the '80s when you first became a fan? I never subscribed to any of
1: them. I would get them on occasion, so just sort of infrequently. If I was, you know, getting a Slurpee at Seven Eleven and playing, I don't know, Street Fighter, if I had any uh, spare change, yeah, I'd grab a magazine or two. I think I mainly stuck with the the Stanley Weston publications, and so. Within those magazines, I can tell you the uh, on-staff heel columnist certainly uh, give me a chuckle or two. I forget who it was. Who
0: Dan Shockett. Oh, Shockett, yeah, yeah. And then Eddie Elner took over for him.
1: Eddie Elner, yes, I remember that. I think it was Eddie Elner who branded uh, Barry Windham a uh, pandering twit <laughs> and held. St- Deadfast to that opinion, even after he joined the Horsemen. Wow. Where you had other guys like somebody named their persona Stately Wayne Manor, which is like, holy kayfabe, Batman. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I, I used to loosely know that guy on the internet, but to answer Mark's question, I do not have my magazine collection. I have a stack of maybe 50 wrestling magazines left over. And the reason being, about 20 years ago, I lived in Gothstown, New Hampshire, and the house we had had an attic. And when we moved there, I put the wrestling magazines in the attic. They went untouched for three years, and then I moved them out. And that's kind of when the light went on. It's like, look, you know, you're just plugging these things from place to place. You don't use them anymore. And before I moved here, I threw most of them out. And you have to understand how many magazines I had. Picture a big storage crate. I had like six or seven of them filled with wrestling magazines and maybe 50 or 60 like old baseball magazines. That was being a pack rat, not throwing out. And when I moved here, I moved by myself. And it wasn't like, you know, a moving guy was going to take care of this for me. So I was like, okay, just get rid of them. And I kept saying to myself, you know what? Don't throw them out. Sell them on eBay. Uh, Scan them first. And it's like, dude, it's been years. You haven't done either of those things. You're not going to just throw them out. And I did. And you know what? I don't regret it. I mean, all they did was take up space. For real. I I stopped reading them because they, you know, my, (laughs) because I grew up. (laughs) What else can I say? My favorites were definitely the ratings. And then the news, you know, the what's happening baby from Bill Apter and then the columns and then the stories were usually really lame. Like even as a sixth grader, when I first started getting the magazines, I, I'd read the the stories they had. I'm like, none of this could possibly be true. This is just <laughs> crap, but it doesn't matter. I bought every <laughs> single one. Every uh, when I was in junior high, every Tuesday, I would go to Fox Market in Plainville, Massachusetts. And that's the day the magazines arrived. I would buy whatever I could.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Even as like a sixth or seventh grader, I would get these magazines. And uh, I mean, at the heart of it, I could I could tell that I really needed to suspend disbelief. Oh, yeah. To believe so much of the content there. I know that there are people who are out there still, you know, trading magazines as collectibles, and you know, holding on to this stuff. And you know, I'm I'm with you there. It's just those those went out with the trash.
0: Yeah. Once you once I started getting the Observer, I mean, really, the 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 after mags were obsolete. I mean, I love them. They're part of my childhood. Thank you, Bill After. Thank you, Stanley Weston. But, I mean, they were, like I said, just completely obsolete. All right, Lou, why, why don't you pick a question? Sure.
1: Popular guest here, Christian Body, has a, a question. If Hulk Hogan actually appeared at Starcade 83, and at one point it was rumored he was going to be Wahoo McDaniel's partner in the tag team match against Dick Slater and Bob Orton, would that have changed anything?
0: I think him just showing up and doing that match doesn't change anything at all. Yeah, I, I can't see it. I mean, maybe it gives Crockett the chance to talk to Hulk Hogan. But I, you know what? I really think that if Hogan had not gotten the WWF offer, which, you know, he was getting one. But let's say he he just didn't. He would have stayed doing what he was doing. He was making a lot of money in the AWA going back and forth uh, between that and New Japan. So I, I don't think it would have made a difference. How about you, Lou?
1: Yeah. At that point in late 83, Hogan, besides New Japan, it was the AWA. And then for the past few years, starting with his first run with Andre, he would appear as a special attraction at certain big shows, be it at Shea Stadium or the Superdome in New Orleans. Uh, places like that. And I guess that would have applied to Hogan showing up to a uh, backup Wahoo, who, you know, Wahoo was in the AWA in 81. And did he spend time there in 83? He was there in 83, yes. Yeah. And he came back to Crockett around mid-year. Thinking about the matchup itself as the way it turned out, where it was Wahoo and, I want to say, was it was a Mark Youngblood? that he ended up teaming with. I believe it was. Yeah, and Slater and Orton, the way it broke down was that Slater and Orton did a number on, you know, Wahoo's arm and shoulder. Then getting away with it, when Wahoo's backup was Mark Youngblood, you know, still kind of a green guy at the time, that makes sense. If the world-beating guy who appeared in Rocky Three, as Thunderlips was the partner in that match, it was Slater and Orton, I don't know if at that point they would have put Hogan over or given him a shine if Hogan was just making that one appearance at Starkade 83. I mean, the way it turned out that that injury, Slater and Orton were able to continue their kind of top heel run and into 84. You had Slater trying to get every singles belt in Mid-Atlantic. So... If it did change anything, it would have been, I don't know, Hogan just uh, uh, there for a point in time.
0: Yeah, I think that Slater and Orton would have understood that, look, you know, this guy is a special attraction. He's a movie star, for heaven's sake. I mean, one of them, and it would have been Orton, would have had to take the leg drop in the one, two, three, and then maybe get some revenge after their match. All right. Nick Bizance, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, asks... Has Dave Meltzer's influence had any negative effects on the business? What is your opinion, Lou?
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, that is a can of worms. Then let's uh, let's grab the opener there. If he had any negative effects on the business, well, it's interesting because Dave started publishing the Observer at least a good seven to ten years before. Uh, the internet became available to the general public, and that's kind of when the great information expansion and the uh, the real kneecapping of kayfabe was taking place, and where you had more intrigue and suspense behind the scenes for uh, regular consumers of uh, pro wrestling than ever before. So, did his influence have negative effects on the business? I think perhaps when you get to the years of the Monday Night Wars and you have Hollywood Hogan talking shit about the dirt sheets.
0: That was ridiculous.
1: What a child. I know. And then you have, you know, Vince Russo, Nuff said. Did his influence directly have negative effects on the
0: business? I'm going to say close to no. Yeah. I mean, I, I cannot think of any way that it really had a major negative effect on the business. If, if anything, it fed the mania. Like, you know, now right. You know more. And, you know, I mean, I would have never gone really on the road beyond New York to see any wrestling shows or the Meadowlands in New Jersey had I never gotten the Observer. I mean, the one thing, there's a couple of minor negatives. Once I was at one of Dennis Carluzzo's shows in New Jersey, and someone started yelling, like, these two guys were at ringside shouting the real names of one of the wrestlers, right? And mm-hmm. this was kind of funny. I walked up to them. I'm like, how you guys doing? I'm John McAdam. And they knew who I was, and they knew what I was there for. Like, kn- knock it off, you two. And But I, w- I was nice about it, but, you know, the light immediately went on. Don't do that. Well, wow, that that takes
1: me back to a, a shameful time in my past fandom. I caught the uh, it, Crockett one of their shows in San Francisco at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. The main event, Tully Blanchard against Dusty Rhodes in a cage. And, well, I mean, it was a wet fart of a match. Some went seven minutes and then, you know, let's go on private jet and head back to Vegas. But people were chanting Dusty, Dusty, and me being a smart ass going Virgil, Virgil. And thank God, you know, not many people
0: paid attention to that. <laughs> but I quickly got over that. You know, good good on you. The other one is that sometimes they are this created fans who just were not as smart as they thought they were. Like I, I remember one guy walks up to Tully Blanchard. And he's like, hey, Tully, who are you working with tonight? And Tully's like, uh, I'm wrestling Ron Garvin. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, oh, I mean, you, you don't just get to walk up to, you know, Ronnie Garvin or Ric Flair, or whoever, and just start talking shop with them. You got to know what you're doing. And if I yeah. may praise myself, I was, I was always pretty good at that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Going back, to I think, to one of your earlier thoughts there is that, yeah, Dave Meltzer started it, uh, the observer and eventually what it became was a, a trade publication. Yes. So that, you know, the people in the business could have a, a broader knowledge base about what was going on. And I think secondarily to that, it certainly, I think perhaps sparked the imagination, or the engage the interest of the fans in these whatever territories they were in, or they could only view, and then to think, oh, okay, so it's like you know you didn't have to put an ad in a you know Pro Wrestling Illustrated and try to do a program swap with somebody to know what was going on. Exactly, you could just lay down the you know however much money to get that very tightly spaced wall-to-wall text on the mimeographed uh,
0: paper. And, boy, you would know it all. Or at least you thought you did. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I mean, you know, there are some people who you can give them every issue of the Observer, the Torch, you name it, and the light's still not going to go on as far as, like, getting the business. But whatever. All right, Lou, mm-hmm. your turn for a question, my friend. Let's see.
1: Clarence Grigsby has a very specific question that I think you can feel, John. He asks, what do you know about the origin of the Knoxville wrestling tapes you used to sell? Did it come from a fan who had a VCR way back then? Or perhaps a wrestler or a TV station employee? Always been curious. My family comes from Hazard, Kentucky. And I promise you, there wouldn't have been more than two or three VCRs in the entire county in 1980.
0: Yeah, not much population around that that area that Southeastern was promoting, especially back in 1979 or 1980. And sorry, Clarence, I'm going to disappoint you. I have no idea where it came from, but I know it was one of the first tapes that I ever traded for. I know that the Southeast stuff was not from... Cable because there were local commercials on there, and some of these commercials were, I mean, pretty crazy. You want to talk about, you know, just really going back in time. So I I remember the tape. I remember it was warped, and I had a hard time getting it into a VCR. But I don't remember how I got it. I personally did not know anyone who owned a VCR until like the fall of 1981. I want to say, or maybe like the beginning of winter. So that's, you know, that's how spaced apart these things were. I mean, I saw commercials for them. I saw magazine ads. I'm like, okay, I'm 16 and I don't have 1200 of $1,981. So, yeah. And so, yeah, one of my friends, his dad got one. and He, he sat in the living room and watched porn all day. I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That
1: does not surprise
0: me in the least
1: having grown up in Libertine, Marin County, California during those days. But yeah, as far as the Knoxville territory, I'm curious, were you able to get tapes of programs after the wrestling war there? So like when Jim Barnett controlled that territory, and then, you know, the successive territory with uh, Blackjack Mulligan and Ric Flair and Jim Crockett?
0: I I have never seen a match from that territory, and I'm a little bit fascinated by it because all of a sudden— that territory popped up and started getting coverage in the after magazines. I'm like, what's this? A new wrestling territory? This is great. And I have never seen a match from it. At least I don't think I have.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> just for reference, if you go to YouTube, I think the name of the promotion was SWI. Something like that put in, like, SWI Knoxville, 81, 82. There were a few
0: shows that you could find. I will check them out. Thank you. I, I Like I said, I remember... Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden we've got Kevin Sullivan in the territory, and this team of Doug Vines and Jeff Sword, and they're they're in the ratings and everything. And, and all of a sudden it, it went bye bye. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me throw a question out there: Does Paul Orndorff belong in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame? Joe Brommer asked that question. What are your thoughts, Lou?
1: Oh, well, having never meditated on. You know, what the guidelines are or what benchmarks you have to clear to be in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame.
0: Well, it's a lot like um, like a baseball Hall of Fame or a football Hall of Fame. There's no, you know, here right. is the criteria, but you have an idea based on who's in and who's not.
1: Sure. Boy,
0: if you take his
1: heel runs in the WWF into account, including being in the main event of a, a Toronto outdoor show with 60,000 fans... Also, being in the main event of WrestleMania 1, and just where sort of even down to uh, the territories in the late 70s, pretty quickly getting pushed to main events in places like Southeastern, like Mid South, in Georgia Championship Wrestling, and then going on to overcoming that horrible nerve damage to keep himself on TV in WCW through a lot of the 90s, I certainly wouldn't have a problem with with him being in the Hall of
0: Fame. I wouldn't have a problem with him being in the Hall of Fame. I think he is that, that level just below a Hall of Famer. I know I could make my audience very happy by saying, yes, of course, I think Paul Orndorff is, is a Hall of Famer, but I put honesty in front of that, you guys are, are going to know every time. You're at least going to get my honest thoughts on the matter, and if I had a ballot in front of me, I would say no, and I love Dorndorf. Hmm. I'm someone who who thinks he could have been NWA champion in like 82, 83. I mean, I saw him in Georgia when he debuted in 1982, and I'm like, I know this guy. I saw him in Mid-South Wrestling. He's awesome. And he just had that look of a champion, and he got a a big push, and everything worked out for him. And this is after he had had a a long run with the North American title in in Mid-South. But to me, he falls just short. And, I I mean, again, honestly, that arm injury, the nerve damage that he had, I really believe is the difference between him getting in and not getting in. He just missed a lot of prime years with that, and it's kind of sad.
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I have no quarrel with that opinion.
0: No, and again, there are some guys like, you know, if they get in the Hall of Fame, like Harold Baines got into the Baseball Hall of Fame. I was like, get out of here. He's not a Hall of Famer. If Paul Lorndorf right. were to ever get in the Observer Hall of Fame, that would not be my reaction. I'd be like, OK, good for him. He's, you know, he certainly could go either way, in my opinion.
1: Harold Baines, if there were a Jerry Reinsdorf Hall, uh, you know, wing in my Baseball Hall of Fame. He'd be plastered all over it, but you know, regular baseball.
0: Mm. I don't know. I, well, not to get, not to not stick to wrestling, but when Harold Baines was active, I'm like, okay, we're we, are, we are finally going to have a non Pete Rose player who might get three thousand hits and is not worthy of the Hall. I mean, for so much of Baines' career, I was saying, oh, you know, the White Sox really need to do better at DH. You only need to do one thing, and it's hit. And he doesn't. He's not that good at it. I mean, for a right fielder, maybe. For, for a DH, get out of here. You need more than that of a DH. And he's in the Hall of Fame. I'm done. I'll stop talking about him. Okay. Next query here
1: from one time stick to wrestling guest, uh, Alfred Sumrall. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much uh, firsthand knowledge you would have of this. I personally have zero. But what territory was said to have had the best
0: rats? The best ring rats. These are. Girls who would show up with the idea of having a fling with a pro wrestler slash television star. I have no firsthand knowledge about back in the territory days, but let's just say there are some Memphis stories out there.
1: Yes, I've heard a couple. I've heard a couple from our pal Howard Baum, one that directly uh, involved Howard. Lucky fellow. Lucky fellow, indeed. Yes, he was a boy, a young adult at the time, 18 years old, I believe. And then there's, uh, what other, I'm thinking of Lyndon the Grappler. And I got to to tell him how much I appreciated reading his book. I saw him at CAC when he and Tony Anthony were the grapplers in Memphis. After the matches, they would go back to, you know, they split a hotel room. And then when they were ready to entertain or be entertained personally, I think it was Tony who uh, told Lynn, okay, why don't you put out the cheese? The cheese being the uh, grappler's orthopedic boot, putting it in the hotel room window. And of course, what does cheese attract? <laughs>
0: That's great. I've never heard that story before. Oh, yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. it's it's good for more than a few laps well the territories you know went down the tubes in the mid 80s so i didn't get to i got to experience different wrestling towns and nothing quite stood out in that uh area more than philadelphia i mean you know i've been to you know baltimore new york whatever boston i've been around the wrestlers and philadelphia i mean it was what's the word i'm looking for it was a buffet table Okay. Yeah. I
1: I mean, you can hardly talk about ECW without somebody mentioning the, what do you call it, the cylinder of sin, the travel lodge. Uh, I don't know if you... I have. ...got to experience that.
0: <laughs> I have stayed at the travel lodge, and yeah, you, you see stuff. I mean, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things <laughs> that it's Philadelphia, and the travel lodge is not in the nicest part of town, and... It's good when you're, what's the word I'm looking for? There are a lot of people you know around in case something goes sideways. Ah, very good. Uh, Yes. Okay. Uh, (laughs) uh, Anyway, let me see.
1: All right, back to PG 13 here or TV 14.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, let me see. Ian Totten asks, what happens if Memphis. Doesn't tank in the '90s, and Jarrett is able to keep it going. What are your thoughts on this, Lou? Oh, that's a good question.
1: And you think about the way Jarrett had his uh, his promotion in a circuit set up. In that it was, I think, even going into the late '80s, early '90s. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, you know, I think maybe. He, the shows at the Mid-South Coliseum went from a weekly schedule to maybe bi-weekly?
0: Towards the very end, yes.
1: Okay. So, I mean, he had his fiefdom with Evansville, Louisville, Memphis, and other spot show cities. And he kept rolling on, on that if he still, you know, had that unfettered access via Channel 5 in Memphis to have a live a ninety-minute show where they could, they could hot shot, they could book on the fly, they could make some very interesting improvised angles on the TV. Since he had owned that uh, the, the Memphis territory since uh, seventy-seven, and had clearly like run it for Goulas and Welch uh, since around seventy seventy-one. I couldn't predict, you know, how long it would have sustained or he could have maintained some, uh, at least a baseline level of popularity. Yeah. Especially considering that you're talking the, the talent pools, uh, you know, drying up. So, I mean, you can't run with uh, the Spellbinder and King Cobra for very long. So, I think it ran its course probably as long as it ever would have.
0: I I think you're probably right. You mentioned the level of improvisation they had to do at the Memphis studio. I remember, I think it was in either, it had to be early 1990, uh, when they had a really bad ice storm overnight in Memphis into a Saturday morning, and literally the city was paralyzed. Uh, You know, Memphis isn't prepared for ice and snow the way boston and new york are and something like six wrestlers made it to the studio and they got a 90 minute show out of these guys and if i recall correctly they kept the tag team champions were there and the titles changed hands like two or three times in in one show but they got through it good for them i thought memphis would last Maybe not forever, but longer than it did because their TV <laughs> was still so strong, even even as the as the you know the the crowds went down the drain, and and the TV was strong not only in Memphis but in Louisville, Evansville, et cetera. Um, but it turns out that, that even with the high ratings, the ad revenue was just not there, and if the fans are watching TV but not coming to the matches, and they weren't. There was no point. So that was something I was absolutely wrong about that. You know, I was like Memphis is is indestructible because of Channel five. And like, no, that's not true. Ryan, Your turn to pull out a question, Lou. Yes, sir. And uh, since he's
1: uh, already been on a hot streak here with his recent appearance, I'm going to get this question from Mr. Chris Alha. Who's your favorite celebrity? to participate in professional wrestling, and actually, all caps, WRESTLE. So, unfortunately, you can't pick Herb from WrestleMania Two.
0: No one under a certain age is going to get what Herb was. I don't even think I got it in 1984, but... Yeah, Lord Al Hayes summed him up perfectly. Elusive Burger Man, (laughs) Herb. (laughs) That's right. Elusive Burger Man. If Chris hadn't put in Wrestle, I would have voted for Elvira. I thought she was fun at WrestleMania, too. I thought she did a good job. She didn't look down on it, nor did she take it all too seriously. I thought she was great. But for the actual wrestler, I mean, it's Mr. T by a long shot. I mean, he was a a household name. Everyone knew who Mr. T was in 1985. And he's getting in the ring, and he's fighting Paul Orndorff and Roddy Piper, and guess what? The the fans thought they bought him as a guy who could go in the ring and actually compete with Orndorff and Piper. And that's that's all that counts. doesn't matter whether or not it, it's true. It's the perception that matters here. And, yeah, I thought the whole thing was great. And it really took wrestling up to a new level, even though I wasn't a, a huge fan of the WWF. I mean, that was quite a coup. Yeah, though
1: oh boy, the balloon came off that rose the next year with a boxing match between T and
0: Piper. Ah, uh, Yes, it did. That was horrible. And I, I could see what was going on. I mean, like neither one of these guys bothered to get in shape to actually box. It was sad. And by 87, Mr. T was yesterday's news. Oh, for sure. So
1: celebrity encompasses a wide variety of professions here. And the first first one I thought of Uh, The first celebrity, quote-unquote, or celebrity athlete or notorious (laughs) figure, I I was thinking of Lawrence Taylor against Bam Bam Bigelow at WrestleMania. And for somebody who had a sports background, but uh, no background in wrestling that at least I knew of, I think... They put together a a pretty good, pretty engaging match at that particular WrestleMania.
0: That was a good match.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you're talking celebrities, actors, like from kind of the modern day, Stephen Amell, who played Oliver Queen on Arrow and now has the uh, the stars wrestling themed dramedy show called uh, Heels. He certainly uh, entertained in his time in the ring as the foil of Cody Rhodes, or Stardust, as he was called at the time. So uh, those two, kind of off the top of my head, I think were fairly notable.
0: If you have never seen Lawrence Taylor play football, audience, go to YouTube and put in Lawrence Taylor highlights. This guy was an absolute terror on the field, and he was a huge name in New York. He retires, and he does the wrestling angle. The one thing I, I didn't like about it, is, you know, ESPN would corner him and say, Hey Lawrence, is this match going to be fixed or what's going on? And Lawrence Taylor kind of danced around the answer. If I'm Vince McMahon, I tell Lawrence Taylor, you know, I don't care if Bam Bam Bigelow thinks it's fixed or not, I'm going to make mush out of his face. I'm I'm maybe, you know, maybe pro wrestling is real, not real, but I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fight this guy. And instead, you know, oh, you know, it's entertainment and this is back before the internet was widely available. I right. could have gotten away with this. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. I think the well, <laughs> the less we talk about the you know we make movies ethos of the World Wrestling Federation, <laughs> uh, the better.
0: Well, I mean, you know what? It, it, it came out eventually, and I was actually <sighs> relieved the first time. I heard The Rock on the Howard Stern show, and Howard asked him, is it real, you know, standard question, and The Rock's like, no, what we do is entertainment, and I'm like, thank God, I don't have to hear that, you know, that lie one more time, that, you know, yes, it's real, if you don't think it's real, get in the ring with me, uh, it's like, you know, that that era was over, and I was was glad it was over.
1: Yeah, for the most part, you wouldn't necessarily have uh, salty guys like Eddie Graham calling up the, the local DJ and, you know, challenging him to a shoot fight. And Rich really would have accomplished nothing.
0: Exactly. Okay, this guy can beat up a DJ. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question. I'm going to, uh, my answer to this is beyond crazy. So get ready. Nolan Lake ask and Lou, you go first on this. What's one match that hooked you and sealed your wrestling fandom? Oh boy. Oh boy.
1: I mean, like I've mentioned before uh, a few times that, you know, just that one angle on AWA TV where Bruiser Brody took out the, uh, the high flyers. That was certainly kind of what kept me tuning in week to week as far as like a single
0: match, which made an impression upon me. All right, and you know what? Mine's an angle, too, but it was an angle contained in a match. The one match that hooked me and sealed my wrestling fandom, get ready for this, was Billy White Wolf and Jose Gonzalez against Crusher Blackwell and Rocky Tamayo. And the reason it was the heels took out Gonzalez. They were beating up Billy White Wolf and Chief J Strongbow came out of nowhere. He had been gone for like two years. I had never seen him before. Came to the ring to rescue Billy White Wolf, and that cemented it. I was like, wow, this guy is awesome. And I loved the White Wolf and Strongbow <laughs> team, and that's and the, the feud with the Executioners, and that's what got me hooked. Uh, and I mean, if we're talking
1: you know, other matches, too, the match on TV with Rick Steamboat and uh, Randy Savage, the classic, oh, he swallowed his tongue, uh, here comes Savage off the top with the ring bell. Steamboat, of course, did his customarily great selling, and that's what certainly hooked me. the <laughs> The update segments between that and WrestleMania three with his speech therapy, you know, re- <laughs> speech therapy, and then yeah, and then taking out the the ninjas on the on the bridge. That oh. <laughs> was just that was the most hokey bullshit. But just you know, between that and then. Uh, the locker room interview the famous one bruno uh giving savage what for you slime uh, calling him a piece of slime slime yeah. slime <laughs> yes so that was yeah i mean that was certainly you know between that and the the whole run up to andre hogan that's why i definitely had to catch wrestlemania
0: 3 on close circuit okay I was lucky enough to get it on pay-per-view. But anyway, okay, your your turn for a question, sir. All right. We'll go back to a stick-to-wrestling
1: guest Hall of Famer. Pretty soon, he might be part of, like, the SNL-style uh, five-time host, get-a-smoking-jacket club, Brad Breitzman. He asks, what is the worst you've seen somebody bleed? live in person
0: not even close it was chris jericho in 1994 oh, at, was it was at 94 yeah. or 95 it was 95 at the night of legends in knoxville um it is Oof. i believe it is available on peacock it was way worse in person than it was on tv i mean i was yelling at brian Hildebrand, who i know i'm like brian you gotta stop this match it was you know it was like nothing i'd ever seen before oh yeah, that's hard to talk. Chris just about cut his head off. And this was before, like, the real hardcore wrestling took over. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was double shocking. I'm not sure if uh, Chris Jericho said, you know, he broke his his dominant arm before the match. And, you know, I'm thinking, that's okay. That's right. He was, he was trying to do a shooting star press, I heard. Yep, and he legit broke his arm. And Jim Cornette was like, you know, Chris is like uh Hey, Jim, it was the morning of the show. Can I try some maneuvers in the ring? And Jim's like, sure, just don't hurt yourself. And so, you know, I was wondering for a long time, okay, because Chris was using his left non-dominant hand to cut himself, you know, was that the problem? And I found out that, no, they had planned on basically him taking a plasma bath to get sympathy against the heavenly bodies. Wow. How about you? Oh, man. That's a a
1: doozy, you know. In an ideal world, I would have said I was, you know, third row ringside with uh, Muto against Hase in Japan. But regrettably, probably the closest I was to ringside during a a show where, you know, somebody juiced. It would have been Crockett Promotions in Oakland, and the match was uh, Steve Williams, Dr. Death, against Mike Rotundo.
0: Really? Yeah, yeah. Two guys not known for doing big blade jobs. Yeah, and I mean, it wasn't
1: a big, big uh, bleeding, so to speak. But then again, I've seen in the top row or the mezzanine in San Francisco when, you know, the war games came to town. So you could see people bleeding, but it was Dusty. You know, Dusty could sneeze and he'd hit a gusher, but... Yeah, being close to that, it was um, Dr. Death got thrown out of the ring by Rotundo. Rick Steiner was at ringside and clocked Steve Williams with a chair. And he came back up and was bleeding.
0: Okay. Yeah, like I said, for me, like uh, nothing on TV, the worst I ever saw was Brett Sawyer in Portland. Uh, I mean, the blood was running down his legs from his forehead. It was disgusting, but I was not there live. All right. Another question from Kevin Dignam. What was your favorite match ever at a house show? How about you, Lou? Well, a house show. So I guess that that would disqualify
1: when I saw uh when I was at the Cow Palace for when New Japan was there for G one in San Francisco. I mean I went to an NXT house show in San Jose. Uh main event was a tag match. Uh Shinsuke Nakamura and Ty Dillinger, uh who you know now is Sean Spears. Tagging against Robert Roode and Samoa Joe. He was obviously in the confines of uh, a sports entertainment match, but they still brought it. If you're talking like a really good pro wrestling match, it would have been uh, the weekend of WrestleMania when they were in Santa Clara a few years ago. Nearby in Redwood City, California, Ring of Honor had a show. The main event was. Jay Briscoe defending the ROH title against Samoa Joe. And they just brought it. Brought it went full force. Uh, Samoa Joe proved that he could still bring it. And that was before he uh, latched on to NXT. Another match on that show, just for sentimental reasons, I really enjoyed, was Jushin Liger against Jay Lethal for the ROH TV title. Nice. Yeah. It's not often you find... Uh, you'd be able to see Liger on these shows.
0: My favorite match that I got to see live, uh, the match itself is kind of a legend or a a myth in its own way, because I was there, Dave Meltzer was there, Jeff Bowdrum was there, Randy Smith was there. I mean, people who were, you know, had their hands in the newsletters. It was um, the night before the Great American Bash 1989. They had a, a show in Philadelphia With Lex Luger against Ricky Steamboat, that was a five-star classic. I mean, Luger was definitely holding up his end, and it's Steamboat, and Steamboat is trying hard. So I got to see that match, and it's been talked about now for 32 years, and I'm convinced no video exists of it. And yeah, I felt really lucky to be there. Sounds, well, anything with Steamboat. 95% Ninety-five percent of the time, it was a doozy. Oh yeah, I mean, like I saw an incredible match at the Boston Garden between Bob Backlund and Ivan Koloff, and I'm uh, in, in 1983, and I'm still the only one who ever talks about it. So y- you know, y- you have to take my word that it was a it was a miracle match. But like this time, you don't have to take my word. I, I have witnesses that this was an incredible match. So th- that's why it's my favorite. Question to you, Lou. Oh, I'm sorry. What question would you like to discuss? Oh, sure thing. From Pete Pingle, who is
1: one wrestler that you never got to see live that you wish you would have, or you could have?
0: Ah, uh, let me. You know, I, I am very lucky. I got to see almost all of the major stars from the 1980s live at one point. And I'm trying. You know who would be? I, I did not get to see. Mr. Wrestling 2, and I would have liked that, and if, if you think, you know, oh my god, you know, he wasn't that big a deal, like, I got to see everybody, and I'm I'm very blessed for that, you know, I got to see Hulk Hogan, Harley Race, Ric Flair, Nick Bockwinkle, Terry Funk, Dory Funk Jr., etc., Randy Savage, Andre the Giant, I, I got to see these guys, so like, I, I feel very lucky, but the one guy I missed who, was on magazine covers, etc. Was was Mr. Wrestling too? Never got to see him live. That's interesting that uh, you know Wrestling Two in that small period
1: of time after Black Saturday when uh, he was part of the World Wrestling Federation that they never put him in in uh, at the Garden or anywhere else up uh, there. He
0: went to Madison Square Garden, but he never made it up to Boston.
1: Or I mean, yeah, I mean the the Boston Garden. One who came to mind, but he is disqualified for me would be Ray Stevens, because I did get to see Ray Stevens at an AWA card at the Cow Palace in, what we'll say, 87. 87 or 88. He was in a six-man match with Greg Gagne and Wahoo McDaniel against the original Midnight Express and Dick Slater. And, of course, at that point, Ray Stevens was, he and Wahoo were booking the AWA, and he, you know, had very little left in the tank. But I want to say it may have been his last match at the Cow Palace. Wow. Which, of course, you would know as the house that Stevens built. And he he got the pinfall. He got a small package on, I don't know, I think it was either Dennis Contree or Randy Rose. And, of course, everybody ate it up. Weren't a lot of people there in attendance, but they lost their minds. So, with that, one wrestler you never got to see live, I'll give you two. One, obviously, given my fandom, would be Bruiser Brody. Just to see his mayhem in the flesh would have been awesome. Number two, Pat Patterson in the Cow Palace in his prime in the late 60s or through the 70s. And I know that Pat Patterson came back numerous times when the AWA was running. Up until, well, I guess, when was it? I don't know when, you know, Vince would not have let him be booked on uh, AWA cards when the WWF started running San Francisco in 84.
0: I can't imagine him letting Patterson work for the AWA when, you know, there's a wrestling war going on.
1: Yeah, but it was not long after after the demise of the Shire promotion. You had Ray Stevens and the Blom Bombers stevens and patterson making shots for the awa at uh, the coliseum and the cow palace but back in his day as a guy who really really had a hold on the territory
0: as far as popularity i would have loved to have seen what he would have done i mean if you can go if i could go back in time i mean i would there i would love to see someone like luthes in his prime but i mean to me that's just not realistic he wasn't active uh, when I was going to wrestling shows. <laughs> but uh let me see. You know what? My answer actually might be David Von Erich. Either David Von Eric or Mr. Wrestling too. I forgot about him. All right. Let's get one more question in. Thomas Bain asks, would canceling over the edge after Owen Hart died really have caused a riot as Vince feared, as Vince claimed to have feared. If so, are there any repercussions from the pay-per-view providers Or arenas. What are your thoughts on this, Lou? You know, my first thought was if they
1: were uh, Vince did a redo of the In Your House Beware of Dog pay-per-view because there were I want to say there were issues with the lights going out and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, they were having an electrical storm and they they lost power. So,
1: if doing a redo there because of an act of God and it didn't, I as far as I know, there wasn't much static about that. I mean, I think obviously, unless you're a truly garbage human, people would have understood that having one of your workers die in the ring, yeah, that's going to cast a pall on the rest of the show and just call it a night and figure something out where they come back to Kansas City down the line. Now, I don't know about the dealing with the pay per view providers or were the people running the the Kemper arena there, but you got to think that there could have been a resolution to where the show didn't go on. And then you could come back as a make good. I I really think that's, that's gotta be the answer there.
0: I mean, you know what? There are a lot of people at the time were very angry with Vince McMahon for keeping the show running and, I can only imagine being like Jeff Jarrett, like having to go out there and do an interview after what just happened. I mean, that, 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 you know, Ugh. it's horrifying. I, 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 But I'm not as mad at, at Vince for keeping the show going because, A, he was in the middle of a wrestling war, and B, the bullets were flying. Like, he doesn't know you know what to do at this point so he keeps the show going i mean that's that's vince he's you know keep going he's a tank that's that's who he is i think in hindsight i don't know vince mcmahon but i'll bet the day after a couple days after he, he would have said you know yeah i think i should have stopped the show but at that moment he had that lapse of judgment and like i said i i forgive him for that because you know, he had to make a split-second decision, and he he made it, and those aren't always the best decision. To answer Thomas's question, there I don't think there would not have been a riot. I think there's zero chance of there being a riot, especially, you know, if you tell people what happened, you know, Owen Hart passed away, and we're just going to go home now. The pay-per-view repercussions, for sure. I mean, if I owned a cable company, I wouldn't even bother... I mean, you know, everyone's going to call and say, hey, I, I don't want this build. And I would just put out a message saying, you know, it's not going to be billed, And I get it from a fan standpoint. Like, you know, hey, I paid to see Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin and I didn't get it. I got half a show. But, you know, that I, I that and that would have cost Vince about a million dollars, which, you know, he's a billionaire now, but he wasn't in 1999 and. You know, I get it that that would have hurt him. Well, like, I mean, he absolutely should have stopped the show. But I I understand why he didn't. I remember that night. And, you know, I want you to share your memory of that night. But I was at my then girlfriend's house and I was watching the Jesse Ventura story, a a made for TV movie. You know how wonderful (laughs) those usually are. And this was as bad as any yeah. movie I've ever seen. But as the movie during uh, during one of the commercial breaks, the the news teases that a pro wrestler died at a pay per view, and I'm like, "What?" And I'm like, "Oh no, not Nick Foley! This sounds like a Mick Foley thing." Mm. So, and they don't tell me who it is, just a pro wrestler. Thanks. Yeah. So I go to my car and I get my laptop. This is 1999. I couldn't just get on my phone. And I'm trying to dial in to some of the wrestling sites, and they are all overwhelmed. I can't get anything in there. I finally got through to one site, and it had a one-sentence announcement that Owen Hart died at the pay-per-view. And I was like, Owen Hart, no. And I know know that sounds, in a way, kind of shitty on my part. Like, yeah, there are guys I would rather see die than Owen Hart, but it, it it was the truth. But... You know, I went from being a little bit relieved that it wasn't McFoley to, Owen Hart. how did this happen? And I figured they just blew a spot where he landed on his head or something. And, oh, no, a hundred times worse Uh, than that. Yeah, I didn't watch the pay-per-view,
1: and I don't have any clear recollection of how and when I got the news about that. It could have been a site like OneWrestling.com. That was it back when Dave Scherer and Mike Johnson and other guys uh, were still there. And I think a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the shock, a lot of the, the real despair over it being Owen Hart is because, you know, you got to think, this is somebody who was uh, the baby of a great family dynasty and who arguably up there with bread in terms of talent as a wrestler and not just talent but untapped talent or underutilized or you know wrongly packaged talent so you just saw that and then the circumstances of his death that it was over a essentially a shitty comedy spot is just really really amplifies the whole tragic and unnecessary way that things unfolded
0: you know for a while after it happened my attitude or my my thoughts were it was an accident you know that accident and then you start learning more and more about what really went on the you know yeah it was a comedy skit and it was a comedy skit they gave him because they were mad at him that you know they, that he wouldn't do an angle where he had a crush on Deborah he wasn't gonna have his kids watching that on TV sitting next to their mom and I mean you, you just read about it and you know they make Owen come down from the the ceiling of the building where the ring must have looked like a postage stamp from from up there and you hear about a sailing company refusing to have anything to do with this angle because they knew it was dangerous. Well, if they knew it was dangerous and they told the WWF, this is too dangerous, we're not getting involved, you don't go forward with it. But they did, and that's yeah. that's the real gut-wrench part. Like, you know, th- they put him in an unsafe situation over some petty bullshit. And that that really, you know, I saw a uh, what is it, a podcast uh Chris Jericho's podcast with um Martha Hart and she's doing well and I'm very happy for her. Uh she's over it, she's going on with her life. Good for her, but uh I mean you can only imagine what her I mean, you know, her getting that news must have been like. Absolutely.
1: And I think the the recent news about Olive Lee honoring Owen posthumously with tournaments and such. I'm glad it's happened.
0: I am too. And I'm glad Martha has never, you know, consented to the WWF using Owen's name or likeness in, in any shape, in, in any way. I'm glad for her that's a, a non-starter. But anyway, um, so on that happy note, <laughs> we conclude our, oh, our podcast for today. I apologize to anyone who posted a question and did not get it answered. I put up. I put up, you know, yay, you know, mailbag uh episode, ask a question, and then I get all excited watching Thursday night football and I forget that I put it up there and I had to close the thread the next morning. So again, I, I do apologize if your question did did go unanswered. I have to thank Lou twice this week for being a great guest and for being the producer of Sticked Wrestling. Well, thank you. I'm always happy to double dip. There you go, and it's going to be friday i believe friday the 6th when this podcast comes out i'm going to be all happy on this day because college basketball starts that weekend so with that said i this has been a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network
1: and this concludes our podcast day